I say to my students, don't be polite. That, you know, be polite off stage, but don't be polite on stage. Because if you're being polite on stage, you know, you go to, when we, when I go to the theater and my head, which is exploding with stuff, you know, and all kinds of tempests and all kinds of stuff. And on stage, it's much more controlled than in my head. I think, well, what the heck am I here for? Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. I'm really excited because this is actually a guest that I've known for at least, well, since 2019, um, because of all the Whitman Bicentennial events. And as you are going to learn, she's quite the theatrical personality, um, all things uh, Whitman in performance, but there's so much more about her artistry that I don't know. So that's why I'm so excited to feature her here today. I am joined with Karin Coonrod, which I always laugh because when I say your name, it has this uh, Irish brogue. But um, Karin Coonrod is a director whose work has been seen and heard across the country and around the world. The New York Times actually calls her prodigiously inventive, I love that, and uh, galvanic. Her work is galvanic. Um, born in Chicago, she has early memories of Italy that she was actually talking to me about before I hit this record button. Studied English at Gordon College in Massachusetts, studied theater directing at Columbia University, and now she's actually faculty at the Yale School of Drama. And we're going to touch upon a lot of her bio organically through just this entryway. So, well, first, I want to welcome you to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here, Andrew. So I think my first question is definitely about your studies, because I think it's very interesting how you go from English to then theater directing as a study at Columbia. And I can see there's a similarity there, but, you know, what was that process? Like, what are the years between these studies you know, how did that all come to be? Great. Um, do you want me to hold that? No, 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 okay. Whatever. So um, I I studied medieval literature too. I, went, I was in Durham, England for a while and for a couple of years actually and was studying uh, Beowulf's so Old English as well as Middle English and, uh, you know, Chaucer and uh, and that I was really, I had a marvelous uh, teacher at Gordon who, you know, was a mentor to a, a small group of us. And, and we really loved the, the muscularity of the language and um, the joy of the humanity of these, of these texts um, and the medieval mystery plays and all of that. So uh I then taught in a boys' school for a while, for a few years. So, you know, I was an English major. Then I taught in a boys' school, and I started to do the plays. You know, it was it, I remember when it was a Catholic boys' school, and the principal who auditioned me, hired, you know, uh, uh, interviewed me, said, would you like to do the theater? And I said, yes, without skipping a beat. And I thought, what? <laughs> what? <laughs> How did I know I could do that? I don't know, but it was... And that goes back to just having had a hunger for all of that, not ever articulating it in the theater. I mean, as a child, I did um, so many things. I played the piano, I sang, I danced, I did a lot of painting, drawing. I was kind of known for doing that, for drawing and painting, and was thinking of fashion. I also played the piano and the flute and um, entered competitions, you know, and, and my dad wanted me to go into music. 
Um, I loved all of it. And then I also loved writing. I, I was a journalist and wrote for the Indianapolis Star because we lived in Indianapolis then. Um, and I was going to a girl's school, Catholic girl's school. So um, I, I did some little, yeah, I was student council president. I did a lot of activities and so forth. But it wasn't until that moment when, and in college too, I did a few things that uh, radio play and different things, but, um, and performed a little bit, not much, a little bit. And, and then when I was asked to do this by the principal, I said, yes. And I started doing musicals. So the first musical was Shenandoah. The second one was My Fair Lady. And you say, you know, at a boys' school, but the girls came flocking to, to audition for it. And it was, and we had a Henry Higgins, you know, a, a beautiful guy, young student who was just marvelous in the role. And uh, in in that way, I never wanted the students. And so I, this is something that goes to the heart of who I am as an artist. I never wanted the students to watch a videotape of what had happened on Broadway and to try to um, duplicate that. That that. We never, you know, some of them had seen it. Sometimes I had seen it, but uh, I wanted to make everything from scratch. Um, so actually my apprenticeship is in, in uh, musicals. I did quite a few, South Pacific, um, at the school, Man of La Mancha. Then, you know, I was hired to do across the street in a, in a, a park, uh, summer and musicals. So Oliver and... Uh, Godspell, oh goodness, um, uh, did Guys and Dolls. That's a great one. Yeah. And so anyway, and always we would make everything, you know, so it was never, um, it, it was made from scratch. And that was really, really important to me. I I, I, I don't even understand um, the notion of taking on something that was duplicate, you know, just a duplicate of something else. Um, and get getting the students around that imaginative um, journey, you know. So so when I was at the school, in, and I was there for about five years, five years at the boys' school, I also brought them, the boys, once a month to New York because it was a school in New Jersey, Christian Brothers Academy. And um, I brought this the boys to uh, New York, it was about once a month. And sometimes with, you know, a group of 50, sometimes a group of 25, very, you know, a small group, uh, sometimes big, sometimes, you know, mini, medium size. And we would see all kinds of things. You know, we would see uh, stuff uh, at Classic Stage Company, where since I've actually directed something and and we would see stuff on Broadway we'd see all, all kinds of Martha Graham dance um all kinds of stuff I brought the boys and I would kind of um I would sort of trick the basketball some of the people on the bat some of the boys on the basketball team to come so that it would be cool so that everybody would then want to come and so no one would anyway it was really it, it there was a I was trying so much to get this inside their imaginations, the the importance of the theatrical um, imagination. So, so I started um, while at the boys' school. In my last couple of years there, I said, you know, I, I mean, I was teaching English, um, and I I love you know I I love the written word and reading, and I I love that very much, and the discussion around books, um, poetry, and all of that, but. The, what really had my heart um, was making the theater. And so I decided that I needed to, and I went to, oh my, this is where the change happened. I took the boys to Greece and I was in Epidurus, is how you say it in Greece, or Epidurus. And um, my mom went on that trip. It was very special. And there were about 50 boys. It was a huge trip. And some of the teachers were there and um, because I could never have handled them all my, by myself. But And I remember sitting probably in the middle of the, the amphitheater and looking out over the stunning landscape and hearing 
you know, the the this is everyone knows about this, but you know, that a, a pan is dropped or even a pin, and you you can hear it. And I thought, you know, this this is so moving that they sculpted an arena in order to hear the theater, in order to hear the words. And I was so moved by the humility and the success of that effort. And I had been to um, Ivita, which was playing at that time in the in the 80s. It was this was 84 or something like that. And I remember that the sound system broke down. I went to see Evita three times because I thought it was just brilliant. I loved it. Um, and I loved the movement. I loved Mandy Patinkin, who had since then I've worked with him once. You know, it was really fun, but he was he was so extraordinary. And their movement across the stage was almost like a an asterisk comic book move, you know. <laughs> and um uh I I but the sound system broke down twice in the three times that I went. And I thought, this is really interesting. In our advanced technology here on Broadway, the sound system breaks down and we can't move forward to listen to this play. But in Greece, everything was heard. And, you know, so I, I was very moved by the humility of that gesture, by the importance of that for those people, um, that all of that was seen and heard. Of course, you know, the scene, that's another thing because, you you know, what you saw close up and what you would see from a great distance would be different things, but you could hear. And so, <clears throat> you know, and also when people in the early 20th century, up until that point, people would always say, I'm going to go and hear a play. Do you want to come with me? But now we always talk about seeing a play. We want to see a play. And and so the image has sort of um, uh, eclipsed, in a way, the hearing of it, you know? And so the hearing of the word, the hearing of things. LGBT stories are universal, but each one speaks to the individual heart and soul of the writer telling it. Do you have a story to tell? If so, the Gay and Lesbian Review wants to hear from you. Have you been moved by an LGBT book, film, painting, television show, or other form of media? The GNLR believes in bringing awareness to queer art and artists through reviews, commentary, and thought pieces in which the author relates their personal lives to a particular piece of art, a novel, a movie, or what have you. In addition to the articles published in the print magazine, the GNLR also publishes articles on its blog as well as personal essays on its popular Here's My Story section. This allows people like you to share their own experiences with our readers. To learn more about submitting either to the print or the online edition of the GNLR, visit glreview.org. That's G-L-R-E-V-I-E-W.org and scroll down to the bottom of the page to find a link to their writer's guidelines. If you have any questions, email stephen.hemrick at glreview.org. The GNLR can't wait to see what you have to say. And remember that they're offering an exclusive code with the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. So when you subscribe to the magazine, you'll receive a free copy with any print or digital subscription. So that's seven issues instead of six. Again, just visit the glreview.org and click subscribe and enter the promo code ITBR for your free issue. And I, you know, anyway, it was in that moment and I was also reading, um, oh God, what's his name? Uh, oh, well, I can't remember his name. Anyway, an uh, incredible guy that um, wrote about the Colossus. Uh, oh, I'm forgetting his name, which is Henry Miller. I was reading Henry Miller. And, you know, wildly, I was going through a Hen Henry Miller stage, and he wrote about Epidaurus. And it was really so exciting also to kind of see what he was writing. But in it was in that space that I said, I have to go into the theater. So, so I knew, and that was in 84, I think. So the whole next year, I was sort of thinking it through. I was still a year, the 
boys' school, I started that last play at the boys' school. Um, and there was a little resistance to it initially. Instead of being, they didn't have a theater. And uh, during my time there, they built a theater. So, um, but I never, I, I left before um, they were a little chagrined about that. But I, I just, I had to leave, you know, but they built a 350 seat theater, but we used to do all the plays in the auditorium, the gym where the boys played basketball. And the last play that I did there was uh, Joseph and the amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. And we started it in the middle of the gym floor where the, the two tall boys, you know, in basketball, they jump for the ball. I don't know what they do, but anyway, yeah, they have to fight over who, which side gets the ball. Who gets the ball. So I, because uh, I would go and see them, and I, I saw that, and all I could think when I saw the basketball game was, oh, this is where we're going to do the theater. This is where we're going to start it. And so I had a beautiful uh, young woman from a, a, you know, school in, the, in that area who started the show as the narrator and right in that spot with a spotlight and in the middle of the gym floor and we built stadium seating around it. And it was so exciting because we just, it was just in the round and we had very, I asked the uh, art teacher who was sort of the head of the, the, the scenic division to just create a, an amazing camel. <laughs> and, and we did, you know, and I brought the boys down to uh, canal street jeans and we got, um, uh, sweatshirts with their Levi, you know, Reuben and all their names, the tribes, the tribe of uh, Hebrew tribe. And, and then Levi, you know, and then uh, we also got um, the, the other big team there was the hockey team. So I took their sticks and turned them upside down and they were the staves. So we just did wild stuff. And, and the, the, this, I, I kind of involved the sports in the theater to to sort of um, uh, not so that the boundaries were not clear, but the boundaries were fuzzy. The boundaries were, you know, they were we were moving into each other, and yet it was theater, and um, and everyone could come around this, you know, very special piece. It was very special. I have to admit, I I really I thought, wow, this could really this could be anyway. It was a. It was at that time that I. I said I'm going to go to New York, and this is what I must do. So I went to Columbia, and I did not want to go anyplace else because I wanted to be in New York City. I wanted that place to be where I would do my research, you know. And I didn't have much money. I just, you know, school did not cost that much then. It's in the 80s. It did not cost as much as it is now. I, I just don't even know how it's, what's happened. Yeah. <laughs> I, how did this happen? You know, I don't know. But it was, um, anyway, I I remember just getting so many comp tickets and going to see like Pina Bausch. I was beside myself, you know, sitting in the front row of Seven Deadly Sins at Bam Opera House. And then I went to see Andre Serban everything at La Mama. I'd already been going there, you know, and CSC and all kinds of places, but the Trojan uh, trilogy and, you know, and all kind at that time, all kinds of, um, they were all, oh, what's, um, all, all kinds of stuff was going on. I, then I was an intern at BAM in 87 and became friends with Joe Melillo and, you know, was an intern there during this incredible Next Wave Festival, which was uh, Peter Brook and Pina Bausch and Anne Theresa de Kiersmacher. So I saw this dance and it was so exciting to me. It was just like, oh, you know, I I, I was just taken to new places. I, I really loved it. And, you know, it's just like dance and theater mixed and words and music and all this um, while, you know, being taught by um, people that, you know, we could engage with um, and also having colleagues. And, but it was, it was really about going to be, to be in New York was very important to me on the ground, boots on the ground, going to see everything I could. 
Um, and I started a company. Um, I started a company. I mean, you know, I've a ridiculous chutzpah. So, <laughs> and my, oh, and my, very importantly, in 1987, a man walked into the, our classroom and I just said, oh, who is this? You know, it was Liviu Chule who became my mentor. And um, he came into our lives and I, I went to New York in 1985 and then 1986, I believe, it was when was when he walked in the next year and he was amazing and he was like he he was um he's no longer with us he died in 2011 but i've seen him since you know uh i'd seen him in bucharest a few times he's romanian you know an extraordinary story from a very wealthy background his father built him a theater the bulandra theater and um he he was an architect, he was an actor, he was a designer, he was a director, and he um, headed the Guthrie Theater for four years and then came to teach at our school at Columbia for just a year. I think I, I, I think he was only there one year, then he went to NYU because probably Zelda gave him a better deal. I don't know, I don't know how he, but I think something, I think Zelda Fitchlander, decided I, and he had worked at the arena so you know there's all this um getting a really great imagination and but i was very lucky and then he asked me to assist him and i said wow because i didn't have a theater background i mean i only directed theater in this boys school and before then you know i didn't study theater as an undergrad i studied english and i was a writer and all that so um he said, you have the poetry. I remember you have the poetry. And so I said, yes, I want to, you know, and and so he gave me an option of two things. And and he said, but he gave me two choices. But then he says, but take this, the Bacchae, the Bacchae um, in the oh, three. Yeah. So, well, and just for everyone out there, that's such a classic ancient Greek play, right? So who wrote that for everyone out there? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Euripides, right? It's Euripides. And um, yeah, it was great, actually. It was great. Um, uh, there were, and we were there for nine weeks. I had started my company in that summer <clears throat> early on, right after school, started the company, then went to assist him for nine weeks. And uh, uh, it it was an extraordinary experience, actually, being with him, staying with him nonstop. And I was learning Romanian too. La Rivadere, you know, just learn, learn. And I had dinner with him and Helga every single night. So it was like I was a surrogate daughter or something. It, it was an extraordinary experience for me. And and also being with him while he designed the lights, because he's also, a, he, he had a particular way, not an American way of working with the lights. So I, I felt very at home with him, a European and my mother, because I'm half Italian, um, people don't know anything of that because of my name. But, you know, my mother was not an American and, and my first memories are in Italy. So um, even though I was born in Chicago, so my and so it, I, it, I felt at home with him. And he particularly seemed to, he was Romanian, but he seemed to have a lot of Italian <laughs> in that, in that Romanian, you know? Um, uh, well, and it's so interesting that it's that Dionysian play that really you learn so much from that tutelage with him, because there's this quote in your bio that has just fascinated me after preparing to talk with you, which is, if Dionysus is grinning, I know it's theater. Yeah. But you have expressed so much atmospheric knowledge of just what fascinates me with the root of theater, which is even with Joseph and the amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, you're going back to antiquity or an ancient past in a way. So it makes sense that you're then thinking of the auditorium mixed with the gymnasium, like how much Greek culture relied on the arts and athleticism were tied together. It, they weren't separated in the way our now modern culture sees arts and culture separated from sports culture. Yeah, absolutely. Blurring the boundaries is really critical. And, and I've, 
that's a joy to me. I mean, not separating, not, not pinning down and identify. I mean, one has to be articulate and clear as clear as possible, but, but it's really, really bringing everybody in and, and, you know, uh, yes, Dionysus, he's the great, he's the God of the theater. So he shakes things up. And what, what our task is, is to shake up, you know, the consciousness to shake us ourselves and our audience and our creators, you know, shake us up so that we can um, go to a new place together. And, and so, yeah, that play was very important to me. I, a very dear friend played the role of, of Dionysus, who is in Funny Girl right now, <laughs> Peter Francis James. Um, and I haven't seen the play, but anyway, I, I you know, he's a very dear friend. And I, I remember the messengers coming in and talking about, you know, what happened. And another very dear friend of mine, Trezana Beverly, played Agave. She's a friend, you know, we just talked the other day on the phone together. Uh, extraordinary. She won. In fact, um, some of the people in that play I've remained very close to, and, and Frizana's one of them. She played God in Orvieto when we did the mi medieval mystery plays. And she often says, you know, um, the two things that I've loved doing the most were, you know, when she, she played Lady in Red for colored girls who considered suicide and got a Tony Award for that role. And and when she did God in front of the steps of the Duomo of Orvieto, right in front of the extraordinary facade, and and did actually um, uh, uh, a passage of from God's trombones of James Weldon Johnson in English, and then the Italian chorus responding. So I really like finding a way that lots of disparate parts, and I had to be, you know, it's like disparate sounds awfully close to desperate. <laughs> it's like I say that and I think, yeah, yeah. <laughs> As it goes into that. But it's disparate parts and bringing all of that together into, into something that uh, is a vision, you know, for that takes us by surprise and and won't let us go, you know, um, won't let us go and stays with us. I mean, there, I believe in the, I believe that the theater can is a holy business. You know, I mean, I went into it for that reason. Um, and I'm, I remain in it and uh, not discouraged, you know, by the commercialism mm -hmm. um, because I believe it's a holy thing, a holy task. Yeah. Well, and we go back to whenever I've taught drama, or even I taught the Broadway musical last year, just briefly mentioning Aristotle's poetics and the way that when he thinks of theater, it's that whole idea of mimesis, which is just the act of interpretation of everyday life, that theater is really, I think, why we're so, as a culture, drawn to whether it's theater or whether it's the imagination of TV, film, characters, that characterization and narratives reflects our everyday lives, but in it, it's somehow turned on its head a little, or yeah, yeah. you see aspects of yourselves where now you have enough distance, no matter whether it's opera or comedy, a tragedy, even reality TV, which we, we can associate qualities and characteristics about ourselves. And I see that in just the way you even talk about your process, I can tell that there's such a analysis behind every idea that you're expressing. And I think I would love for you to explain that tutelage, because it seems that that is the opening, that mentorship you received at Columbia, that it's led you on this pathway where, um, is that the advice you have for those out there that you really, once you find that network, not to let it go, to really trust your instincts with a mentor. Oh, absolutely. There's, there's, you know, I, I have a whole notebook of everything that I was writing down. And there were times in the aesthetic 
of that, you know, he was a little more old school and I was new school. You know, I mean, new school is like somebody who said, who was it who said, somebody just said this to me the other day, that one of our jazz musicians said, there's no old, no, Marsalis, Winton Marsalis, I think, or somebody like this said, there's no old school and new school, there's just school. (laughs) (laughs) So I can't remember, you know, so many things float around in my head, but I was writing stuff, everything that he said to me and I had a whole notebook uh, of it and um, you know one thing that he said I remember there's to not let and this was never a problem for me but I love that he 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 uh, articulated this don't let the realistic eclipse the real and I often say that to my students at the uh, at Yale because I want them to understand when, you know, sometimes people get very excited about, I have to, you know, set a scene and it has to be like all these things, you know, it has to be all this stuff in the scene. And I think, well, you know, I, I teach Shakespeare. So um, if you're going to do Shakespeare that way, it's going to be, I mean, I'm sure there'll be someone that could prove me wrong and all this, but it's, it doesn't float. It doesn't, live as much you know it's meant to be it it's it's meant to be a gesture it's meant to be um to live in the words and in the fluidity of its uh, its action Hi, this is Andrew, and I'm interrupting what I know is an enthralling interview because I want you all to know that we are sponsored by Broadview Press. And if you don't know, Broadview Press is an independent academic publisher who publishes books covering topics like English studies, writing, philosophy, history, gender studies. And every season on the podcast, I interview one of the Broadview Press authors. So for the fall, we had Ann Stevens on to talk about literary theory and criticism. She played a Wizard of Oz literary game with us. She talked about why Bridgerton actually involves literary theory. So does Fifty Shades of Grey. Who knew? Um, And also... We just had on Jeffrey Weinstock, who wrote the first ever pop culture analysis book. So, you know, I am all things a lover of pop culture, especially my Hollywood topics, Real Housewives, the list goes on and on. And he also wrote the book called The Mad Scientist's Guide to Composition, where he's writing a book teaching students about how to write rhetorical strategies, but it's all around this metaphor of being in the mad scientist laboratory, because as you'll learn when you hear our episode with Jeffrey, he is a gothic and horror fanatic. And I mean that in all the best ways possible. So you don't want to miss Broadview Press's exclusive discount because you're listening to the podcast. All of you get an automatic 20% off Use the code Ivory Tower for 20% off site wide on all of their books. So, our in our show notes, we have a link to Broadview Press. Make sure you click the link, put in Ivory Tower, and you're going to get 20% off your order. So, enjoy your reading, everyone. And so the real, you know, that is with us, the the real is like a Rothko painting, you know, um, that you get drawn in and you see more and more and more um, and it gets almost trippy, you know, but, but it's not, um, and it's not realistic. And, and that, that was very important for me. And, and so, you know, in the, in the tutelage of also reading Peter Brook, who is also a great mentor, you know, in, I mean, I've met him a few times and he also is gone last year, you know, but, but um, he, his, and, and he's a mentor to so many of us in, that are alive now, you know, directing because an extraordinary mind and who wrote down um, the empty space, that amazing piece of writing about theater. 
um, holy, holy theater. And, you know, I took it to heart. I mean, I read that and I said, wow, you know, and, and then had leave you as my mentor and, um, and we, you know, and working together, um, and, uh, seeing sometimes how he would say, ah, you would do that differently, wouldn't you? And I said, yeah, <laughs> I probably would, <laughs> you know, just trusting for instance, um, you know, it's funny, you know, just certain moments where he did something and I would have probably taken it. I don't know. Yeah, but I didn't, I was interested in what he was doing. I was following that, you know, and I was there to help him. That's what I wanted to do, to be uh, of assistance in any way I could. Yeah. Well, and you mentioned Shakespeare. So I think it's really important because just even the way and I'm sure the audience who's listening, this is resonating so much that when you hear Shakespeare or classic theater, ancient Greek um, drama, there it's almost this misconception or it's something maybe I've wanted to be upfront with my students. And I'm, I have a feeling you're in this similar camp, which is getting it out of this stuffy, very... Um, jilted way of seeing it as only for the elite academics and Shakespeare, the way you're describing though, this organic sense of coming from the language and the words and surprising yourself as that character in the moment is really inspiring. And I know you had uh, the merchant in Venice um, in the Jewish ghetto was actually where it was performed. So, you know, how is, how did that all come to be? I mean, and it wasn't just The Merchant of Venice, but you've done Romeo and Juliet and, I mean, many Shakespeare productions. Yeah. So, you know, if we use Shakespeare, because I can tell it's um, it's a collection and his work is really resonating with your method and I think is a good case study for us to get into, okay, this is how she really processes her directing vision. So yeah, what was that? Just being in a Jewish ghetto and that sensory experience, how did that feel for you as a director? Well, it was extraordinary. And everybody involved in the project was, we were just beside ourselves. So what happened is <clears throat> I was approached by David Castan, who is a Shakespearean at Yale. He was at Columbia first, actually. And uh, a very dear friend. And then also Shalbasi of Kafoskari, which is um, the university in Venice. And they kind of cooked up this idea of doing the merchant of Venice as a kind of provocation um, in the Jewish ghetto to mark the 500th anniversary of its founding in conjunction with the 400th anniversary of Shakespeare's death. So there were a lot of people, you know, coming around this, this project. <clears throat> and that was in 2016. So it was, it was thrilling. It, when, when I first got this email from David, I, I was just, I was in Hawaii with, uh, you know, family and I, <laughs> I said, wow, yes, I'm interested, but I'm going to, you know, I'm just rereading the play. You know, I was a little scared because my husband, my family is Jewish. I, I'm not born Jewish, you know, I'm not Jewish. I'm, I call myself Judeo-Christian. Mm -hmm. So, um, but I knew I, I was very excited and, and reread it, thought, you know, and said, yes, 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 I can, I will do this. Our company had been in Italy um, and we started all these conversations. You know, we, we had been in Orvieto for about, three, four, three years doing the medieval mystery plays. Then later on, we did Orfeo, the, uh, an opera, Monteverdi. Oh, and what is your company? So, oh, it's Com Compagnia de Colombari. So we were born in Orvieto. We were born in Italy. So some of the, some of the squadra, you know, they're, some of them are Italian and some of them are American and many Americans. And then, and then many of them have worked together, know each other and, and, and trying to keep all of that afloat. Um, with limited funding has been a challenge, but we'll see, we'll see, you know, don't give up. Um, but anyway, with the Merchant of Venice project, this was um, 
looked at by this was kind of hovered over by many people, many angels who uh, gave to the project. Um, and uh, we, we, we had a workshop in 2015 that we worked on Isola San Giorgio in the um, uh, Chini Fondazione Chini, which was also amazing because that's kind of a repository of theater uh, research and, and uh, Shaul, who is kind of the unofficial mayor of, of the ghetto. I mean, he's Jewish and a professor of Shakespeare at Kafoskari. So he was uh, boots on the ground and just worked like crazy you yeah. know, for this to happen. Well, and there's so much um, pressure, especially with the Merchant of Venice and yeah. how there's anti-Semitic conversations around it, not weighing in and judging it one way or another. Because I think it really comes from, it sounds, as a community, how you all came together and had these conversations, I'm assuming, of how to do it in a way that honors the Jewish community and also creates conversations, especially to mark these, um, the anniversary of the Jewish ghetto. You said 500 years, Shakespeare's 400th anniversary, um, that did it draw a lot of the public because it's, it sounds like something I'm consistently hearing that I love is how public all of your concerns are, is how is this going to reach an audience outside of the quote-unquote uh, status quo, like those who will always come to these theatrical experiences, but how can we um, bring in a new audience and rethink it a little? I, I love that. I think that's that's very much the journey I'm on. With with this particular play, one thing that I did um, that's really central to um, the whole project is that rather than inviting one uh, gentleman, you know, to play the role of Shylock, um, which we all know, and we've seen some beautiful performances by people that we could all name immediately, but um, I wanted to open it up to the five scenes of Shylock um, to have them play, to have these scenes played by one different Shylock in each scene so that, that it would be um, something that was Jewish and universal. Mm -hmm. And so I had five different, very different characters. Um, and we did it in North America too, in with an American um, company at Montclair and, you know, at, at up at Yale and up in Dartmouth and yeah, it was super fun. Um, but in with these five Shylocks, they came together twice. And so one is the merchant, one is the father, one is the sort I call the mother. But, you know, because it's a single parent, Leah, clearly he loved Leah in that one line that, you know, he says, I had it of her when I was a bachelor, that ring that Jessica took. So, um, so the, 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 the widower, the mother, the, the father, the mother, the widower, and the killer. And, you know, so much, I mean, the study of the text is incredible. I think that this text, and I I um, beg to differ with my another mentor of mine, a, a kind of surrogate father, who also is not with us anymore, Harold Bloom, who said he, he thought that, you know, this play should not be on the shelf. And, um, I I respectfully disagree. I think that that the writer is framing this anti-Judaism, anti-Semitism. This this I think he's framing it and showing what the culture does. Mm -hmm. Now I know that many things, and this play could be taken as an example. You know, as we know, it's been it's been played so that it can be it can show Shylock as. Um, a villain or you know as and and then since the holocaust since world war ii then it's also been seen sometimes overly sentimental you know thinking that he is this great hero he's not a great hero he's not also this villain he's a human being shylock is you know, another favorite writer of mine, Ken Gross, wrote a beautiful Shylock is Shakespeare. I mean, there's a sense of, of, of Shakespeare, ex, ex, uh, expressing his own humanity, and Shylock is the only one in the play that calls upon an, um, 
um, invisible community, the community that is not with us anymore, you know, but that is there. So on Abraham, on Jacob, on um, Isaac, and, you know, the, and Daniel, and I, you, you know, when you go deep into the text, and this is where I could get super excited, and <laughs> because there's never an end. You never get to an end. You could keep doing it. And the thing is that the, the root goes deep, 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 and the the cries go very high. And a center, a center point of the whole uh, where the play really shifted in the ghetto is, is just, it, it's the lights, because we started it at uh, twilight. And so, you know, it was still daylight, and this is summertime, of course. Um, but at the point of Jessica leaving, she took a torch and it was like she was going into carnival. And, you know, it's also really weird that Lorenzo asked her to, to hold the torch. That's like, that is not the part that you give to your beloved. That is a very dangerous place to be in the front of the group of men, you know, in, in the labyrinthine uh, passageways of, of Venice, which could be very dangerous and dark. Um, so she... At that point, um, Frank London, who's the founder of the Klezmatics, played um, the sort of uh, song of Shylock on this trumpet on, up on a roof of in the ghetto. And um, we started with, you know, this this kind of attack on the five the five actors playing Shylock. They each played other roles as well but each of them then played was changed by the crew the black angels i call them into the shylock robe which they each had a kind of desert robe with a golden sash that instead of marking with a star or an armband was actually right around their whole center the corpus you know their core and it was a beautiful silk um, stefano nicolao made the costumes and we talked through everything this was so gorgeous. And they were all transformed with these desert clocks. And then they came together and Shylock number three, played by Jenny Jones, who's actually from Wales. Um, and she let out a howl um, after, you know, the whole company, I gave them the text from Salano and Salarino and put it on the world stage, putting it in French and German and, uh, Italian and English and Spanish and all languages making fun of the Jew, you know, that they're sort of mock mockeries of him um, and put it in the language of the entire company of of the actors who were they were first and foremost a company and then they played the roles. And these five Shylocks came together and created a kind of um, they created a group almost like um uh, Rodin's The Burgers of Calais. I realized that that was an image. After we, you know, it just, things are always um, uh, coinciding constantly. And that's always a sign that, you know, like the five Shalaks is also like the five books of the Torah mm -hmm. and the 500 years and the five windows representing the five books and the five, because our set, we did not create a set. We just played right on the stones of Venice. And we created stadium seating for um, the audience, 250 people to watch in front of the two synagogues in the Jewish ghetto, the stunning um, German synagogue with its five windows and then this, the, um, the Italian synagogue. So those and these apartment buildings that they, you know, of the ghetto that go back all these years, um, they couldn't build out. So they built up, you know, so it's like... Um, uh, you know, it's extraordinary. So this howl that Jenny Jones let out um, came from the very stones. Came she, she's a force. She's a force. And we're, I just saw her in Venice. We're working again on another project. But she, she let out a howl and fearless, and it went up, up, up into the sky, so that it, again, almost like that moment at Epidotus that I had where you could hear anything that happened. It was so silent in the ghetto. Everybody, people came out on their balconies to watch. We had so many police there because people were very scared. The Jewish Museum of New York was going to come, and then they did not come because of um, all the 
all the stuff that was going on, you know, the the, uh, the French um, Bastille, um, you know, there was that, the uh, terrorist attacks were going on all over the place. And so people were scared. Uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg came to see it, our production, because, um, you know, she she was invited and, and also her grandson is part of our company. Um, but it was it was just extraordinary, and so we had lots of security, lots of security, um, lots of police. Everyone was quiet as Jenny let out this howl from ancient howl, ancient howl of this, um, you know, nonstop, incessant, you know, inability to see the beauty of the other, you know. Well, yeah, and I think that inability um, to not see the other or you're kind of it's so interesting because more or less I am is has that theme, which I also want everyone to note out there that, yes, you well, you founded two theater companies, but you also do write like for more or less I am you actually put together the um writing of how Whitman's the dialogue would sound and you were involved with all of that as well correct yeah it, we this it, it's an adaptation that I worked with uh, a few marvelous people John Halpern who oh I'm mentioning all these people who are not with us anymore it breaks my heart but um he um uh, was a writer for the New York Observer, and we worked together on putting, uh, starting this project of More or Less I Am, and um, going through Song of Myself. 1855 edition was really important to me. I didn't want to do the other editions. I wanted to do the primal impulse, the primal sort of thing that um, that Whitman came up with, you know, when he was 36 years old in 1855. I just feel so, so uh, important and real and um, urgent somehow. And also he was wanting to make something huge. You know, what was it going to be? A musical? What was it going to be? A book? What was it going to be? No, it became a poem. But it's kind of a poem of these United States or even these continents, these Americas. So we sat for many uh, meetings, you know, and went through and said, we should, let's have this. No, let's not have that. Let's have this. Let's not have that. Because we knew that we didn't want to do the whole thing. What well, I'm not, you know, the theater, like I always go back to the God is of the theater is Dionysus. And it's not about being, um, you know, uh, dutiful or reverent. It's not about that. It's 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 about shaking things up and it's about saying, I'm going to steal this and I'm going to take this and I'm going to do this. But I wanted Whitman's words because Whitman is the guy we're dancing with. It's his, it's Whitman, um, you know, who's, who, who's just prophetic in well, what he wrote. And in Song of Myself, it's Whitman who writes phallic processions, which is actually all related to the Dionysian festivals. So, you know, that Dionysus makes an appearance through Whitman's own imaginary, his imagination, his poetics. And it it seems like we keep circling back to like where the root of theater is, but how it's made anew. Like it's yeah. there's always new reverberations. And right, being aware of that. Yeah. Um and paying homage, but I love what you say that you can't be dutiful. Like yeah. you, you can't pay reverence and think, okay, I have to do an adaptation of all of song of myself, or no. even if it's an adaptation of a classic novel, it, yeah. there's always going to be a different interpretation. And I think that's, what's so exciting about Shakespeare too, is where is it set? Oh, is it, you know, in Manhattan in 2023, you in a, uh, you know, Greenwich Village um, art gallery or we we that's what's so inviting about the theater. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you know, always getting the collaborators that you also want to work with very much and that with the more or less I am, the musicians are just extraordinary and did so much research, but they bring 
their stuff. They're so vital. You know, we were all, I mean, it's, it's important to, it's important to be vital in the work and and to see the vitality of the writer that you're working with. So it's Shakespeare is alive now as he was then, as is Whitman. I mean, I you know they say things, but you can't hold them to say whatever they said or didn't say. Who cares? You know what? <laughs> it's 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 what they wrote in their prophetic moments that you know where that that they're they're touched in the head. You know, we artists are touched in the head. Hey, Ivory Tower Boiler Room listeners and true crime friends. You've heard me gush over this incredible woman and her beautiful products. I'm talking about Mandy Made It. Mandy makes customized and original crochet and cre-cut goods. They are the perfect, unique, one-of-a-kind gift for literally anyone in your life. And she makes incredible home decor. I still have my pumpkins that I put out every fall. I just love them. Check her out on Instagram at M-A-N-D-E-E Made It or search Mandy Made It on Facebook. To order, just slide into her DMs. And if you mention the Ivory Tower Boiler Room, you will receive a free personalized gift with your first order. So... Go on Instagram and look up at Mandy Made It, and Mandy is spelled M-A-N-D-E-E. Again, her handle is at Mandy Made It, Mandy spelled M-A-N-D-E-E, and order today. Hi, this is Andrew. So, you know, when I'm not here in the Ivory Tower Boiler Room, sometimes I'm actually invited to be on other podcasts as a guest. Well, there is one podcast run by Christian Garcia and um, his co-host, Nate, that I absolutely love. It is called That Old Gay Classic Cinema. So calling all you classic cinema fans out there and those who love queer theme cinema, which I think there's a lot of you who are listening right now where you've uh, perked up. So follow them on Instagram at That Old Gay Classic Cinema. The first ever episode I was featured as a guest, it's The Sound of Music. I got to talk about being Captain Von Trapp in high school, and it's just such an exciting conversation. They've also featured discussions about Gone with the Wind, The Wizard of Oz, which features guests from uh, the podcast The Garland Gab and Down the Yellow Brick Pod. There is a deep dive of Cinderella, and recently they had an episode on the film Giant starring Elizabeth Taylor, Rock Hudson, and James Dean. And actually, one of the uh, guests, Lauren Randall, I know from Stony Brook University's PhD English department. So shout out, Lauren. Um, you can listen to That Old Gay Classic Cinema on Apple, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts. It's definitely such a great listen. So why not listen to it after you listen to this current episode on the Ivory Tower Boiler Room? You know, you're just like, I, I don't know. It's just, it's happening. And I'm listening to what the thing wants to be, yeah. what the pro, what the piece that we're making, we're making something, we're sculpting something. And what does it want to be? And, and so you listen hard to it and you give, and with the collaborators and, you know, as the director, I'm the, the visionary of it, but, but I listen super hard to it and all of us, and we're all listening and it comes into being, and then we know, and then it can change too. Like more or less, I am. Sometimes we shift, we we change, we add something, you know, uh, you know, all kinds of things happen. So, yeah. Well, and it's just these investment in the multifacetedness of how, whether it be Shakespeare or Whitman, um, that these creators and yourself. I mean, you're so inspiring, Karen, because you're really recognizing these, that you're taking risks of presenting the contradictions of whether it's poetry or the dramatic text that you choose. 
that it spurs a conversation and it can cause controversy, but isn't that what we're lacking right now is the need for dialogue, that we need to have these debates and discussions and not hide it behind a mask. Like that's where maybe the mask isn't going to work in this ancient Greek metaphor. We need to put it all out there. So, you know, how do you think about that? Especially you're giving me so much encouragement as a mentor in my own life of even, you know, here we are recording at Pen and Brush. Here you are on the Ivory Tower Boiler Room podcast, but I also have an affiliation with Stony Brook University. You do with Yale School of Drama, but we have these passion um, organizations. I mean, you have a theatrical company. Um, Do you ever feel, does that uh, voice in your head that we have that cautions you ever come in and you have to put it in check and say, no, I'm going for this artistic vision. I'm not going to listen to institutional bureaucratic uh, advice of just playing it safe. Oh yeah. I never play it safe. (laughs) (laughs) Never. (laughs) I mean, what, you know, it's, it's, that's not what we're called to do. You know, it's just not, I don't, I don't get that. And I tell my students, you know, there, there there's certain things that dictate, you know, when we don't have enough money, um, and money does dictate things, um, uh, the lack of, but it can also um, create opportunities that you would not have known about, you know, but, you know, I, that's not to say, okay, poor theater forever, but, you know, because we do, we pay actors, I mean, the, you know, we are always trying to find the funding and all of that, so that's a boring conversation, <laughs> but, you know, um, no, I, I say to my students, don't be polite that, you know, be polite off stage, but don't be polite on stage because if you're being polite on stage, you know, you go to, when we, when I go to the theater and my head, which is exploding with stuff, you know, and all kinds of tempests and all kinds of stuff. And on stage, it's much more controlled than in my head. I think, well, what the heck am I here for? You know, I'm not, I'm not getting anything from this. This is very, you know, it's nicely done. It's fine. Um, but it's not taking me any place. It's not gripping me. It's not taking me any place. So I want it to go to a place that a person on stage and the creators on stage have had the, the you know, the, the, as Lorca says, the duende, you know, that, you know, you, that's, you know, the, it, that's a holy thing too. That's a whole other thing, you know, but it's, it's like the, the fearlessness to be able to go to a place that you don't know, you know, and to trust that somehow in that not knowing it will come up, you know, it will be made known. And so you have to trust. I, I, I was just saying a group of, of students at, um, at school the other day, you know, or starting Julius Caesar. And I, I said to them, trust yourselves, trust each other and trust what is greater than all of us put together. When that is deeply invested and when all of that happens and you trust on those three levels, then amazing things happen. Well, I think you've led us into where I'm now going to turn it over to our subscribers. So Everyone out there, I'm still with Karin. I'm not moving from this, but I want to get into just for a few more minutes, this really important conversation about the risk taking, what you say to your students, but also it has come up on the podcast before with Off-Broadway Musical um, creator Jeffrey Schmelkin about the vibrancy I see with Off-Broadway or even when I've gone to the Red Bull Theater with Shakespeare Productions, um, or even the Flea. I just saw one of my former students was in Twelfth Night and it was so beautifully done. But why are we thinking about the corporatization of theater in a completely distorted way? Like, are we prioritizing certain um, productions in a way where we're valorizing um, like just highlighting Broadway, which 
I know both of us love, but are we not looking at other arenas? Like, what are we missing out on if we only focus on Broadway and that capitalist model? So, you know, everyone out there, I'm going to let Karin dwell on this, but um, go to patreon.com slash ivory tower boiler room. We're going to get into this. And also, I want to hear about some misconceptions about the Yale School of Drama, because I feel it's lurking in our background. And, you know, if Meryl Streep ever listens to this, I want her to be proud. (laughs) Okay, so we are going to come right back. Welcome to the spring season. This is Andrew from the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. Make sure that you always listen to our new episodes on Mondays. Are you following us on social media? No? Oh, you need to. Follow the Ivory Tower Boiler Room on TikTok and Instagram at Ivory Tower Boiler Room and on Twitter at Ivory Boiler Room. Hey, true crime friends. This is Mary DePippi, host of True Crime in Academia. Don't forget, episodes come out on Fridays at 7.30 p.m. And you can also follow True Crime and Academia on social media. On Instagram and TikTok, we're at True Crime and Academia. And on Twitter, at TC in Academia. And Mary and I, we need some coffee. We need to keep a pep in our step and we just need that caffeine. So do you we know sound we sound energetic. The- we're not. We're tired. Yeah, yeah, no, this is all coffee. So the Ivory Tower Boiler Room Cafe is our Patreon, Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Ivory Tower Boiler Room. $5 a month unlocks so many bonus episodes. So for the Ivory Tower Boiler Room, you get Mary and I, our exclusive winter arts and culture hot takes, including what do we think about Prince Harry, Pamela Anderson, Where are Oscars predictions right? Why does James Cameron have to make Avatar movies? We want more Titanic. Okay, and also I dissect straight gym bro culture with Dominic Jaynes. Why are people afraid of sodomy? You get all the uncensored conversations on Patreon. That's where our bonus episodes are. And I know, Mary, what do you have on Patreon? Oh, we have a lot right now. I cover cases that I would not cover on the podcast. So if you want to access those, like Andrew said, go to patreon.com slash ivory tower boiler room. So you can see episodes from true crime, like the dating game killer, AKA Rodney Alcala, Or you can see the live video interviews that we have done. Most recently, I interviewed not one, but two forensic psychologists. And get this, I only released 30 minutes of the actual audio to the podcast. So that means the whole extra 30 minutes is on Patreon just for some Wait, an extra 30 minutes? An See, extra 30 just for minutes. a cup of coffee, everyone. Okay, well, I also want to shout out our amazing internship team here. So our interns include Andrea, Sarah, Caitlin, Rosie, and Sheila. A round of applause to all of them. We thank you. They keep the ivory tower boiler room literally going. Uh, so Mary and I are so appreciative. Thanks to our audience. And we can't wait to see you back here. Bye, everyone.